You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 15. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there, how is your week? I hope you're doing very well. I have a very special guest today. I would like to introduce to you a teacher of mine. I have taken four years worth of herbal training from this gentleman, and his name is David Winston. David is an herbalist and ethnobotanist with over 40 years of training in Cherokee, Chinese, and Western herbal traditions. He's a clinician, teacher, author, creator, and so much more. He's been in clinical practice for over 35 years and is an herbal consultant to physicians, herbalists, researchers throughout the world. David is the founder of the Herbal Therapeutics Research Library and the Dean of David Winston's Center for Herbal Studies, a training program in clinical herbal medicine that I completed a few years back. David is the president of Herbalist and Alchemist, a manufacturer that produces herbal products that blend the art and science of the world's herbal traditions. David is the author and co-author of four herbal textbooks and is a founding member and professional member of the American Herbalist Guild and also an advisor for the American Botanical Council and the American Herbal Product Association. Thank you so much again for joining me. I'm very, very excited. Uh, What was your youth and childhood uh, like, and when did you really know that you were interested in herbal medicine? What was your journey like? Well, I'm too old to have been diagnosed, but if I had been younger, I would have been diagnosed as having ADHD, and I am dyslexic. And so as a child, I was very different. I had lots of learning disabilities. I didn't learn to read till I was in third grade. And that's only because my mother, who actually worked with, um, you know, young education, uh, uh, education of, 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 you know, uh, kindergartners and things like that, realized I wasn't reading. Mm-hmm. And she found this woman who specialized in helping kids who had a hard time learning to read. And so... Basically, with all of these challenges, which of course at the time were not really well understood, it kind of pushed me off in a different direction. And Mm -hmm. I spent my childhood in the woods as much time as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by plants and animals and just the natural world. And then when I was about 11 years old, or 11 or 12, I came across this book by a man named Yule Givens called Stalking the Wild Asparagus, and it was about edible plants. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was amazing that there were all these plants growing wild out in the woods and fields, which happens to be I lived next to a lot of fields and a lot of woods. And so I started going out and looking and trying to identify plants. And I actually taught myself field botany, although I would suggest that that's not the best way to do it. I made a number of interesting mistakes. Luckily, I survived them all. Uh, But anyway, I taught myself field botany, and I started experimenting with edible plants and started reading every book I could on edible plants and herbal medicine. And of course, there weren't very many back then. Mm -hmm. And I'd read everything I could. And I'd go out, I'd try to find the plant. And I had this philosophy that if I, you know, if I, in order to really understand a plant, I had to try it myself. I couldn't just read about it. I had to actually see what it did. And I have lots of funny stories about uh, senna, you know, and (laughs) what happens if you take too much senna, which of course is a very strong laxative. And 
But I basically started to teach myself herbal medicine. And then a little bit later on, I started to spend some time with an uncle of mine in North Carolina and an aunt of mine in North Carolina, and who both of whom used herbs and started to learn from them. Then eventually I moved to New York. I uh, went to college and took classes in anatomy and physiology and cellular biology and pathophysiology and pharmacognosy and, um, and learned that. And then in addition to that, I uh, was fortunate enough to spend about three years apprenticing with a Chinese doctor in New York mm-hmm. where I learned uh, Chinese medicine. Um, and around 1976, I studied with probably one of the great herbalists of the 20th century, a man named William Lasassier. And so basically, I fell in love with plants and especially the idea that plants could be used as medicine and food. And I continued to do it, and even though you know people would say to me when I was 15, I started leading herb walks when I was, I think, 16. Mm-hmm. People would say to me, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm an herbalist. And they'd look at me like I had just told them I was an alien with three heads. Mm-hmm. People would like go, you, you, you mean like spices? And I'd go, no. And if they were really knowledgeable, they'd say something like, you mean like potpourri? And I'd go, no, medicinal plants. And I, could, I can remember them shaking their heads, and I'm sure they were thinking, poor misguided youth, why would you waste your time studying something that people stopped doing 100, 150 years ago. You know, it would be like me telling them I'm learning how to deliver ice for people's ice boxes or learn the, you know, or light the gas lamps at night. But as I said, I fell in love with it, and I was stubborn enough that I just stuck with it. And even though for a very long time nobody was interested, I was fascinated. Mm -hmm. And I am very, very fortunate that having been trained in uh, Chinese and Western eclectic herbal medicine and Southeastern herbal traditions, that, you know, here we are, it is now 48 years later, and the world has caught up and people are interested in herbal medicine. And so I am fortunate not only to have spent my life doing what I love to do, but I get to travel all over the U.S., Canada, Europe, teaching people about herbal medicine. Uh, I have my two-year herb studies program. I have a company that makes herbal products. I write articles. I write books. And my passion is also my vocation and avocation. That is wonderful. Thank you. You are talking about several different traditions that you were able to learn and combine together. How did that happen? Because most of the times you hear, okay, this person is practicing Ayurvedic medicine, or they practice traditional Chinese medicine. There are very few people that are very good at combining variety of different uh, practices, and you're one of them. Could you talk to us a little bit about how that happened? Well, It wasn't an intentional thing. It wasn't something I decided to start doing. It's just that the opportunities to learn different traditions of medicine came along. And as they did, I recognized that there were similarities between them and there were also significant differences. And so, for instance, one of the things I teach, I call the 10 tastes, the energetics of herbs. Mm -hmm. And it is a system that takes from Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and Tibetan medicine and some Native American traditions and kind of is this system of understanding how to determine the energetics of of a plant via its taste. And energetics is one of those things that a lot of people who start looking at herbal medicine, um, and because most Americans are, we're, we're still, you know, coming out of what I would consider the herbal dark ages, you know, from the 1930s through the 1970s, herbal medicine virtually ceased to exist in the United States. And then those of us who really became interested in herbs in the late 60s and early 70s, Um, started to create, and again, not intentionally, but what eventually becomes what I'll call the herbal renaissance. And so things are are very, very different now where there is a phenomenal and creative and vibrant herbal community in the United States. So the fact of the matter is, is that I was fortunate to stumble into somebody who was a Chinese medical doctor 
uh, my aunt and my uncle. Um, I learned about the eclectics. For, I stumbled across a library of eclectic uh, medical volumes uh, back around 1975 and bought every single one of them that I could and read them and, and realized that there were MDs in the United States that actually primarily used herbal medicines. And so for me, it was the idea that no system has all the answers. Whether we are talking about allopathic medicine, orthodox medicine, whether we are talking about herbal medicine, no, or any specific tradition, TCM, Ayurveda, Yunani, Tib, Kampo, uh, Siddha from Sri Lanka, none of these systems have all the answers. Each one has a slightly different view of the human body, health, and disease. And it just made sense to me that the idea is instead of having one lens to look through things, to have multiple lenses to look through things. To me, it, it, it's really useful in clinical practice because sometimes somebody will come to me with a problem that makes a lot of sense from a Chinese perspective but wouldn't make any sense from a Western perspective at all. So, for instance, if somebody came to me, let's say it's a man, and he's telling me he has low and chronic low back pain, weak knees, uh, fatigue, from a Western perspective, those would be several independent problems. Mm -hmm. From a Chinese perspective, this is somebody suffering what's called deficient kidney yang, and it allows me to understand what's going on. And so in some cases, you have multiple names for the same condition. So for instance, what we call osteoarthritis in Western medicine is called D-pain in Chinese medicine. In uh, native cultures, it's called the crippler. It's the same condition. Okay. But then we have each system of medicine has its, own, as we said, its own take on the body and health and disease, and each one has come to certain understandings that are true, but maybe others, uh, other traditions haven't figured that out. And so what we are doing is we're having more tools in our toolbox. So instead of only having one tool or one toolbox, I have multiple toolboxes with many different tools. And think of it in the analogy if I was a carpenter and I was trying to do some fine woodworking and all I had is a large cross-cut saw as opposed to maybe like a keyhole saw or something like that, you use the wrong tool. Unfortunately, in most cases, you're not going to get the results you want. And so I believe that every one of these traditions is useful and effective but again, none of them have all the answers. And so for me, having multiple systems, multiple toolboxes gives me the best results. David, I have a follow-up question to this. So usually when I talk to students and they say, well, there are different resources or different herbalists or different, you know, different sources that cite different things. How do you go about this? Especially considering that you're saying that different traditions might have understanding that is somewhat different how do you kind of like merge this and decide that this is the right way or if you have like three or four different uh, herbalists let's say western herbalists that are saying this herb can be used for a specific indication um, but they don't always agree on what this indication is but they have used it in variety of different cases and have been successful how do you look at this well my dear friend Rosemary Gladstar said one time, she said, the only thing herbalists agree on is not to use aluminum cookware. Okay. And there's some truth to that. Because the Western herbal tradition pretty much became extinct, the, what we'll call the herbal renaissance in the United States is based on a variety of sources, a variety of traditions. So a lot of American herbalists know at least a little bit about Chinese medicine and a few Chinese herbs, and they may know science, they may not know science, they may, you know, come from any number of different traditions, the South Southern folk tradition or wise woman tradition, or they may have studied the physiomedicalists or the eclectics or or whatever. You know, the, the beautiful thing about American herbal medicine is it's really uh, vibrant and alive. Yes. The bad thing about it is, is that there is no sense of consensus on a lot of issues. So that creates some challenges. If you look at TCM, 
it's standardized. It basically, TCM, for the most part, you're going to get the same herbs, the same uses, the same formulas over and over and over again. When you look at, you know, the five Chinese Bengals, Materia Medicus, they all pretty much have the same herbs, same uses, etc. But that's not true in American herbal medicine. And so what you're looking at, at least in my case, is, for instance, um, I often go back and look at the physiomedicalists and the eclectics. These were medical doctors who used herbal medicine and left us a very rich written tradition. Not everything they say is gospel, but, I mean, these were people who were in clinical practice. And so when you look at their literature, there's a lot of consistency there. Um, again, the same thing's true of Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, which, of course, I work with as well. Now, when somebody says to me, oh, I use this for this and it worked, then the question becomes is, first off, who is, who is saying this? Is this somebody who I know is an experienced clinician who's been in practice for 20, 30, 40 years, and, and I trust and, and you know and think they really know what they're talking about? Is this somebody who just read something and is now parroting it? Um, so I think you have to look at the source. Um, how many times have they used it? One of the things that I always tell my students is you have to use something many, 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 many times and get consistent activity before you start telling people this is good for this. So I will give you an example. Sure. I have treated in my career only two cases of prolactinomas, which is pituitary tumor. So what can I say about prolactinomas? I can say the two cases I treated, I used a combination of white sage, chase tree, and bugleweed, lycopis. And in both of those cases, the tumor shrank, the inappropriate lactation ceased, and all the other symptoms of, of prolactinemia went away. So that's really impressive, except it's only two cases, and you can't make any great conclusion from that. Now, recently, I had another practitioner who had somebody with a prolactinoma, and I said, well, here's what I used in a case like that. Give it a try. And the results came back that over a two-month period of time, their prolactin levels dropped by 50%. So now we don't have two cases. We have three, and three is better than two. But I would need to do this 15 or 20 times before I would really feel comfortable saying this absolutely works rather than this worked two or three times. Okay. So another example of that is, and, and as I say, I tell people, unless you've done it over and over and over again, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt because you don't know. Maybe it was a self-limiting condition. Maybe the person got better because of placebo. Maybe it was the healing relationship. That's the relationship between the practitioner and the person coming to see them. All of those things can trigger a healing response, and it may have nothing to do with the herbs. So um, <clears throat> generally, I'm very conservative on that point. And But I had a case where I had read, somebody had read about uh, using a horsetail vinegar for athlete's foot. And while athlete's foot is not a uh, life-threatening condition, it's actually really hard to treat with herbs. Lots right. of times people say, oh, tea tree oil, except as soon as you stop using the tea tree oil, the athlete's foot comes back. So it really suppresses it rather than gets rid of it. And so um, I had known about that. And I remember I had also known that my aunt had recommended using uh, horsetail in, as a douche for uh, things like vaginal candidiasis, which is also a fungal infection. And I, I think I came across one other thing, and, I, and I, so I used it in two cases. And in both cases, I made this horsetail vinegar, the athlete's foot, I mean, literally disappeared. And relatively quickly, within a couple of weeks, it was gone. And so I made the mistake of starting to tell people, wow, this stuff really works great for athlete's foot except I should have waited because the next eight cases I had, you know, two out of two is impressive, but the next eight cases I had, it really didn't work well at all. Either it worked minimally or not at all. And when you look at two out of 10, we're no longer very impressive. And so I think you need to be conservative in that point way. I think you need to be very careful about making claims until you have adequate evidence. I am a big fan of science, and so I'm a big fan of human research, and I'm constantly looking at human research and constantly finding human research that backs up traditional use. And so when you have um, human research that backs up traditional use, I think that's a good level of evidence. 
even if you have traditional use and you have animal research that suggests that the you know tr- human use the traditional human use is valid that's a certain level of research so everything doesn't have to be a randomized controlled placebo controlled you know uh, trial but it's nice when you can find them thank you for this the- Yep, mm-hmm. yep. I remember listening to James Snow a uh, number of years ago when he said if you use traditional research and you have either in vitro data or animal data or human data, you can have a significant uh, degree of comfort that there is something there that's working and there is safety there. And so this is something mm-hmm. that really stayed with me. So thank you. Um, uh, David, I know that uh, in your 40-plus years uh, as a clinician, you have also written quite a bit. And so one of the uh, books that uh, made you very well known in herbal and also non-herbal world um, is Adaptogens, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief. I wanted to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about this. Like, how did you become interested in this particular topic? Can you define what adaptogens are? Can you talk about... a little bit about like what are some of the misconceptions that you see um, in today's day and age in terms of these uh, powerful plants? Well, in traditional medicine, there are, for instance, in Chinese medicine, there are herbs known as kidney yang tonics. And in Ayurveda, there are herbs known as rasayanas, which are rejuvenative remedies. And so all traditional systems of medicine have these types of medicines. Now, a lot of people believe that any kidney yang tonic or any rasayana is therefore an adaptogen. And that, of course, is not true because the word adaptogen is a modern word coined in 1961 by uh, Dr. Israel Breckman. And um, they were doing research um, out of the old Soviet Union, and they were looking for substances that would make better workers, better cosmonauts, and better soldiers. And so this research was initially funded by the military, mm-hmm. Soviet military. And they originally were looking actually at uh, pharmaceuticals, but um, eventually they found that pharmaceuticals didn't really work so well, and they came across a plant that seemed to have these effects, and that was uh, Asian ginseng. Um, The problem was at that time, even though China and the Soviet Union were both quote-unquote socialist republics, and you would think they were friendly, they weren't. In fact, the two largest standing armies in the world were on each other's borders. And the last thing that the Russians wanted to do was pay their hard-gotten Western currency uh, to the Chinese for ginseng, because the Chinese wouldn't take rubles, because they really weren't worth anything. Mm -hmm. And so they started looking around, and they eventually came across an indigenous uh, Russian plant called Eleutherococcus senticosis. Some people called it Siberian ginseng, which is really a misnomer. Today, it's mostly known as Eleuthero. Mm-hmm. So when I first studied, started studying herbs back in the late 1960s, um, some of the first herbs I learned about were herbs like Asian ginseng and Eleuthero, which had been introduced into the United States. And I was fascinated that you had these herbs that were these powerful tonic herbs. And over the years, I certainly learned about others. And as the adaptogens research started to come out, it just made so much sense to me. Here were these herbs that had significant impact on endocrine function, immune function, nervous system function, and that could be beneficial to human health. And so I've had a interest in adaptogens literally from the beginning of my herbal career. Now, one of the challenges is is that the initial definition of an adaptogen was very simple. This was um, uh, Dr. Breckman um, uh, came up with this, and basically he said an adaptogen had to meet three criteria. Number one, it basically helped to create a nonspecific state of resistance in the body, meaning it helps you to resist stress Um, and impacts of stress, irregardless of whether that stress is psychological stress, physiological stress. Number two, they are non-toxic in a normal therapeutic dose. And number three, they have a systemic amphoteric effect, meaning a normalizing effect on the body. Well, that was a great initial definition, but it is so broad that what happened is lots of people started claiming this herb's an adaptogen and that herb's an adaptogen. I've heard people claim cranberries are an adaptogen and all sorts of things. And so 
One of the reasons I decided to write the book, there were two main reasons. Number one is that I wanted to clarify for people what is and is not an adaptogen. And number two, the other thing is, is that, for instance, I teach in the UK pretty regularly. I'll be going there this year. Mm -hmm. And um, when I teach in the UK, a lot of the UK herbalists, like when somebody needs an adaptogen, everybody uses Eleuthero. It's like... Give them a luthero, give them a luthero. Well, the thing is, adaptogens are not a one-size-fits-all category of herb. There are numerous adaptogens. There are what we'll, we'll say eight well-researched adaptogens, uh, a greater number of what I'll call probable and then possible adaptogens. But there are eight that we know really are adaptogens. And some of them are stimulating. Some of them are calming. Some of them are warming. Some of them are cooling. Some of them are drying. And some of them are moistening. And so the real issue is, is which adaptogen is right for the person that you are treating. You don't want just any generic adaptogen. You want one that's appropriate for the person you are dealing with. And I would also point out that in traditional medicine, herbs are rarely used as simples, meaning single herbs. And the way Americans use and often study herbs is one herb. So you you know you have prostate problems. Saw palmetto is the prostate herb. Well, it isn't. You have menopausal problems. Oh, black cohosh is the menopause herb. Oh, actually, it isn't. And so, for instance, in herbal medicine, there's this idea of synergy. The synergy is the idea that several herbs used in combination can be more than the sum of its parts if the herbs are intelligently combined because not only is there synergy where one plus one equals three or four or five, there's also anti-synergy or antagonism where one plus one equals one. Mm-hmm. So basically we want people to understand that all adaptogens are not the same. And so the second reason I wrote the book is I wanted to give people a sense of the personality of the adaptogenic plants, which what they are, what they do, and why one might be more appropriate for a given person than another. And then one day, a guy who I actually didn't know at the time called me up and he wanted to know, I had had a large article on adaptogens that he had seen, and he wanted to take my article and put it in a publication that he was going to put out, and he wanted to know if he had permission to use my article. And basically, it was going to be mostly my article and a little bit of his, I guess, writing around the edges. I said, well, no, you can't use my article. It's my article. Um, I said, but you know what? You're right. There really are no good books on adaptogens. Let's write one. And um, he said, well, I don't know. We can get a publisher. I said, oh, don't worry about that. I can have a publisher in a week. And so we proposed it, got a publisher, and the first edition came out. And I would actually, I'm really happy to say it's been 10 years, so it's been a long time. Hmm. I am working on the second edition now, and hopefully that will be out maybe late next year. Um, And there's a good reason for wanting a second edition because – What I knew about adaptogens in 2006 when I wrote the book, it was published in 2007, and what I know about adaptogens now is significantly different. So, for instance, many herbs that people think of as adaptogens, things like maca or goji berry or amla fruit or processed romania or nettle seed, there's actually no evidence that any single one of them are adaptogens, even though I guarantee you can find articles, you know, even research claiming they're adaptogens, but there's no evidence they're adaptogens. They're what I call nutritive tonics. But the key to using adaptogens appropriately is not only figuring out which one or ones are right for you, it's what do you combine them with to create synergy. And so adaptogens are almost always used in combination with things like nervines, which are nerve tonics, uh, nutritive tonics, which are nourishing tonics but are not adaptogens. They might be used along with nootropics, herbs that enhance cerebral circulation. And so getting back to your question, what is an adaptogen? Well, the initial uh, definition, as we said, creates a nonspecific state of resistance. Uh, it's non-toxic and normal therapeutic dose, and it has a systemic amphoteric effect. Well, Later researchers, in this case, I believe doctors, um, maybe Panosian and Dardamoff, added to the definition of an adaptogen that adaptogens worked through two master control systems in the body, these being the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which controls 
all endocrine function, a great deal of nervous system function, as well as immune function, and through um, chemical mediators, a great deal of everything else in the body as well. Um, and the SAS, the sympathoadrenal system, which is our fight or flight mechanism. So between these two systems, we're talking about the system that deals with chronic stress, the HPA axis, and acute stress, the SAS. So in order for an herb to be an adaptogen, it has to meet the first three parameters from mm -hmm. Dr. Breckman. It has to meet these next two parameters, meaning its primary mode of activity is through the HPA axis and SAS. And Dr. Panosian and Dr. Wickman, uh, who are two of the top researchers on adaptogens today, more recently, around 2009-2010, discovered that adaptogens also work on a cellular level. And what they are doing on a cellular level is two things. Number one, they are preventing uh, cortisol-induced mitochondrial dysfunction. And so people who have chronically elevated cortisol levels, um, it basically shuts down the mitochondria, which are the engines of the cells. And so when people have uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, they develop things like chronic fatigue, immune deficiency syndrome, or fibromyalgia. So adaptogens are basically inhibiting stress-induced cortisol release. And they also upregulate certain stress mediators, such as two heat shock proteins, a forkhead protein known as FOXO, and something called neuropeptide Y. Now, these substances are actually triggered by stress. So you're saying, wait a minute, you take an adaptogen and it upregulates these stress chemicals? And the answer is yes. Think of it as a little bit like getting a vaccine. And the vaccine basically primes your immune system. So if you come across that virus, the immune system knows to attack it. So what they're doing is they are priming, in this case with the adaptogens, they are priming the HPA axis and, and the SAS and saying, okay, stress is going to be coming. So when stress comes, your body reacts more appropriately. So instead of constantly going into the fight or flight response, you have an initial response. And when the body realizes that you don't need to be under, you know, uh, stress, can, you're not, no, really not under stress anymore, it shuts everything down more effectively. So adaptogens do all of these things. And for an herb to be an adaptogen, it has to do all of those things, which is why we talk about well-researched adaptogens, and the eight of those are Asian ginseng, American ginseng, eleuthero, um, ashwagandha, the Ayurvedic herb ashwagandha, shizandra, uh, which is a, another Chinese herb, um, cordyceps fungus, um, uh, shilajit, which is a very peculiar substance, and I have lost count, and I'm not sure if I have left anything out, but those are possibly leaving one Rapunticum? out. Those are the Oh, Rapunticum uh, and Rhodiola okay. are the other, the other well-researched adaptogens. So those are the well-researched adaptogens. And then there are herbs where there's evidence that they're adaptogenic, but the evidence is nowhere near as conclusive as the well-researched adaptogens. And I would call those probable adaptogens. And that's things like holy basil, which actually in the last year or so, because of new research, went from what I would call possible adaptogen to a probable adaptogen. The Ayurvedic herb shatavari, uh, Aurelia elata, which is a Russian herb. Uh, the Chinese herb uh, marinda, bajitian, uh, another Chinese herb called soyang. Uh, another Chinese herb called Rukang Rong. These are all what I would consider to be probable adaptogens. And then there's a group of herbs that I'd call possible adaptogens, but that means that the evidence is really poor, meaning there's a little bit of evidence, but not great. And so there you have herbs like the Chinese tonic herb Codenopsis, which might be a really good nutritive tonic mm -hmm. or maybe an adaptogen. This is fascinating. Thank you. I uh, I really can't wait to see the second edition of your book, but there are so <laughs> many questions that I have as you're talking about this. So one of them is how does someone who really doesn't have the, the breadth of your knowledge and the understanding of these different plants, like how do you start? How do you start working with them? Where where do you start your exploration? How do you learn about the adaptogens? And 
who can actually benefit from one? And how well, do you look? Education. Right. And how do you look at you? You talked a lot about energetics at some point, mm -hmm. and that the energetics is a very important part in selecting an adaptogen. So can can you talk? Right. Can you kind of like talk about some of these things? Well, education is vital. And as I said, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. So obviously, reading the book would be a good way to at least get a basic understanding of what, you know, adaptogens are and what some of the different aspects of adaptogens. Uh, be very careful about going online because over the last couple years, adaptogens have become hot. And everybody is adaptogenic, you know, foods and adaptogen this. And I'm sure they're going to have an adaptogen deodorant and, a de uh, it, you know, and it's just become faddish. And okay. adaptogens are not panaceas. All right, so an adaptogen does not replace the foundations of health. Which the foundations are what? of health are good quality and adequate sleep, a healthy diet, exercise, healthy lifestyle choices. So if you have somebody who's flying all around the world and is really jet lagged, adaptogens can be great, assuming that they're generally taking care of themselves. You have somebody who, again, is trying to take care of themselves, but they have a new baby in the house. And so they're not getting enough sleep. Adaptogens can be great there. You have somebody who's a college student, and again, they're trying to take care of themselves. They're eating reasonably well, um, and it's easier to eat well at college now than it used to be uh, even 10 years ago. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, it's finals, and, and they're having to pull all-nighters, and adaptogens could work there. So adaptogens are great when we are under significant amounts of stress, again, physiological stress or emotional stress. Mm -hmm. But taking an adaptogen and abusing yourself, simply the old sort of uh, uh, saying, you can whip a tired horse and it'll go further, but then it'll collapse. You don't want to use adaptogens as a crutch to sort of uh, make up for the fact that your diet is horrible or that you're only sleeping three or four hours a night or that you never exercise. You want to try to take care of yourself and use adaptogens to help you to have a more appropriate stress response. And so, as I said, education is vital. Be careful about what you write, read, find online. And even within, you know, I, I just did an interview the other day for a, a publication uh, about adaptogens. And it was about confusion of, about adaptogens because of so many products that are claimed to be adaptogens. And one of the things that I said is that there is confusion in the scientific community. There's confusion in the herbal community. There's confusion in the industry, the natural products industry, and among consumers. And so educate yourself. Don't assume that um, you know, every adaptogen is right for you. So I'll give an example. Ashwagandha is a wonderful calming adaptogen. Uh, it's an Ayurvedic plant. The root is the part used. Uh, but the thing you need to understand about adaptogen, while adaptogens generally have a systemic amphoteric effect, normalizing effect, that doesn't mean all adaptogens normalize everything. And so ashwagandha is probably the most effective thyroid stimulant that I know of in mm -hmm. the herbal, you know, in the herbal world. And so I use it all the time for people who have, uh, who are hypothyroid, who have, you know, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But Ashwagandha would be contraindicated for somebody who had hyperthyroid, a hyperthyroid condition such as Graves' disease. And so, again, you know, for the most part, I would say uh, adaptogens are very safe. Uh, we talked about them, that they're non-toxic and normal therapeutic doses. But it's certainly we can say that certain adaptogens are going to be more effective, more useful, and in some cases much more appropriate. Another example would be rhodiola. Rhodiola comes from basically northern Russia, Scandinavia, um, northern China. Uh, and I would also point out that a lot of the rhodiola in the American marketplace is not the species that it's claimed to be. It's not rhodiola rosea. It's uh, rhodiola kiriloi, which I don't think has the same level of activity. Mm -hmm. But rhodiola is the second most stimulating adaptogen. Uh, probably uh, Asian red ginseng would be the first. And so you don't want to give it to somebody who's easily overstimulated. And you have somebody who tells you, you know, if I have a tiny bit of caffeine or a tiny piece of chocolate after lunch, I can't sleep at night. Don't give them rhodiola. They'll be awake all night. Rhodiola is also very drying. 
And so somebody with a dry mouth, dry cough, dry skin, dry eyes, vaginal dryness, you don't want to give them rhodiola because it'll dry them out more. And so again, it really comes down to learning the qualities of each of these herbs. And since there's only eight well-researched adaptogens, it's actually not that difficult to get a good sense of what they do and how to use them. Um, and, you know, as I said, um, it's nice that we do have a, well, I'll call my book a primer on the use of adaptogens, although I would say for sure the second edition, I think, will be far superior to the first, but we'll have to wait a little while for that. Thank you. Uh, I have another follow-up question for you. So um, as someone who created a herbal product company, the Herbalist and Alchemist, um, you were talking about being cautious with the products that you are actually finding as far as adaptogens go. Can you talk in terms of quality control uh, as far as adaptogens go or anything else that is out on the market? How do you, when you know that this is the specific product or this is a specific herb that you would like to try or that you would like to experiment with or you would like to uh, include in a formula, um, how do you look for reputable companies, for reputable products? Like what, what would be your recommendation at this point? Well, when we are talking about quality control, um, any herb company should be following what are called GMPs, good manufacturing practices. They are inspected by the FDA. And so whenever you hear that the herbal products are not regulated, they most definitely are, and they're actually quite highly regulated. Um, so you want to make sure that the company you're getting your products from is follow fully following the GMPs. I would also say that I think that any herb company should have an herbalist as part of their uh, either management or design team or whatever. Uh, there are a lot of large herb companies that do not have any herbalists at all. They have pharmacists, they have pharmacognosists, they have medical doctors, but those are not people who are really trained to use herbal medicine, just like I believe in any uh, herbal research an herbalist should be a part of the design team because mm -hmm. who knows how to use these things better than herbalists. And again, right. most of the research is not, uh, they don't have herbalists involved. So I think that's really important. Quality control, quality control, there's virtually many ways you can look, you know, look at quality. Uh, number one, you want to make sure that they're doing what's called organoleptics. Organoleptics means taste, smell, touch, uh, color, etc. But then, for instance, if you're a company and you're getting your herbs whole, a lot of times you can tell exactly what it is from the whole herb. If you can't, you need to do chemical testing to determine whether or not you have what you think you have because what's in, in, on the label is what needs to be in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many cases of adulteration uh, in the herbal industry, um, I think less today than there used to be, but it still occurs. We see saw palmetto coming out of China, except saw palmetto doesn't grow in China, and a lot of those products have been found to be palm oil, which is not saw palmetto at all. Um, as I said, a lot of the rhodiola is not the right species, although it doesn't mean the other species has no activity. I don't believe it has quite the level of activity that the rhodiola rosea, which is the official species, has. And so um, it is important. It is really important. And so you need to find companies that are fanatical about quality. Um, and the money is not their end-all and be-all. So, again, you know, are there herbalists as part of this company? Are they fully following the GMPs? Uh, what is their history? How long have they been an herb company? I remember being at a large natural products expo years ago, and there's this company called Such and Such Herb Company, and they only had three products, mm -hmm. and two of them weren't herbs. And I'm looking at it going, really? This is an herb company? They had colloidal silver something else I don't recall, and one herb. I mean, that, that's not an herb company. How long have they been in business? You know, what is their reputation? Um, those are all, I think, important points. And so my company, I founded in 1982, Herbalist and Alchemist, and it's not because I wanted to have an herb company. I never wanted to have an herb company. It's because in 1982, there were virtually no good herbal products in the United States, and I... You know, would send my patients to to the health food store, and they'd come back with stuff that was useless. 
So I started making my own products, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, because you can't just make a tiny bottle of a tincture. You got to make a large bottle. There's a certain volume of scale to make it work. Mm-hmm. I th- said, what do I do with all the extra? I said, oh, I'll have an herb company. Like I had any idea what that meant, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't. Um, I'm not a business person. I'm a clinical herbalist, and so yes, I have an herb company, and we make incredible medicines. There are other really wonderful herb companies out there. You know, I would say that. Um, certainly Herbalist and Alchemist is one. I would say Herb Farm is another. Uh, uh, Vena Botanicals in Maine is another great herb company. I mean, there are many really good quality herb companies out there. Um, and then there are some, you know, if you see a, a product that's only sold on the Internet, you know, I'd be a little cautious about that. I'm not saying that, that it couldn't be a good product, but if it's not also sold in stores and things like that. You know, I wonder if they're really following the GMPs. Um, so those are all questions people can ask. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. David, your colleagues and your students know uh, your passion for books. So my next question might be a little bit tricky to answer, but I was hoping you could tell us if you have few favorite resources, places that someone who is starting to learn about herbal medicine can uh, go to and can start exploring. You mentioned that education is vital. So if you were starting today, where would you begin? Um, I probably, well, I do. I tell people, first off, to go to the website of the American Botanical Council, who are the publishers of Herbalgram. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Herbalgram is one of the best uh, publications out there. It is, while it is written for the layperson, it is not dumbed down to any degree. Uh, the information there is quality. And so, and they have a lot of information on their website. So, the American Botanical Council would be a good place. I would also say um, I have several websites, and there's lots of uh, free articles and. Uh, um, uh, reprints from uh, books in my library uh, that people can download for free. Uh, the late, great Michael Moore, who was one of the great herbalists also of the 20th century, his website is a wonderful resource with, again, lots of books that you can uh, print off you know, for free. Um, so there are many wonderful uh, publications out there. I would say that... Um, any book by Rosemary Gladstar is for a beginner is well worth reading and well worth having because she writes in an incredibly accessible way and gives people good basic information about uh, herbal medicine. So that that is a wonderful resource as well. And I would also mention, um, as I said, I have two websites and it's um, herbaltherapeutics.net and herbalstudies.net. And if I go to my website, let's see here, we have a links page. And these links are all, let's say they're curated links. And what I mean by that is these are links that I think are really good contacts for people. And so we have we have our library resources, we have our links, and so I've got links to the American Botanical Council, the American Herbal Pharmacopeia, uh, other great herbalists like Aviva Ram and Alan Tillotson and Christopher Hobbs. Um, I've got links to uh, Henriette's herbal homepage. Oh, this is a great resource for people. Henriette is a Finnish herbalist who uh, basically has uh, copy uh, information from some of the great herbal resources like King's Dispensatory and Ellingwood's Materia Medica. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Um, let's see, what are some of the other ones? Uh, resources like Jim McDonald, the Lloyd Library, which is the greatest library of botanical, uh, herbal, and pharmaceutical medicine in the world. You have um, uh, Michael Tierra's website. You have Phyllis Light's website. So there are lots and lots of great resources here, and they're all picked because they are resources that I think give people great information uh, and a great education. Um, And so the idea is 
find the good stuff. And again, unfortunately, there is so much stuff on the internet. Well, unfortunately, there's so much stuff on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say that, at least in my opinion, um, probably 65, 70% of what's on the internet, when we're talking about herbal medicine, is not worth bothering with. So that means that there's only about 30, 35% of it that is really good. And again, the average person who's not well educated in this area has no way to differentiate them. So just going to my links page or any of these other people I mentioned, you go to their links pages, I suspect, although I'm not entirely sure, that they've also been careful about who they linked to, meaning they've linked to basically good sources, uh, uh, good products, good information, and so there is a tremendous amount of information out there that people can access that is wonderful information. You just want to separate the wheat from the chaff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So as we're coming to an end of this interview, I have two questions for you. So the first one will be, uh, is there something else that you would like to share with this audience that we have not discussed yet? And my second question for you would be how someone can learn more about you and from you. So I have taken four years of classes uh, through your school, and I am a huge advocate, but I would like you to, to share a little bit more about uh, some of the places that uh, people can learn from you. Okay. Well, first off, the first part of your question, um, additional things I'd like to share with people, um, a couple of basic ground rules with herbal medicine. A lot of people have this idea that herbs are natural, so therefore they are all safe. My aunt used to say that we can divide herbs into three categories, foods, medicines, and poisons. And so the food herbs, this would be not just things that we're used to using eating as foods like garlic and ginger and rosemary and thyme and things like that, or even blueberries. Um, These are mild, gentle herbs and other food herbs that are not things we don't normally think of as foods would be things like chamomile tea and lemon balm and hawthorn berry. These are food herbs. So these are gentle. They are unlikely to cause adverse effects. Um, And so these are things that people can use with pretty high level of safety. Our medicines, on the other hand, are stronger acting. And so our medicine herbs would be things like black cohosh and chase tree and herbs like um, golden seal. And these are herbs that you need to know more about. And you use them for a specific reason, for a specific period of time, and then you stop using them. They're not tonics. You don't just take them every day because they're good for you. So again, these are herbs you need to know more about. And then the poisons, these are herbs that should be left to people who are highly trained and understand how to use them, understand their toxicology. They are not for general use. Now, good news is most of them are not. You're not going to go off into a health food store and find these things for sale. Um, but even some of the stronger medicine slash poison right on the cusp, herbs like poke root, which you can find in health food stores, that should be left to people who understand how to use it because if you use it incorrectly, you will be very, very unhappy. Okay. So that's number one. Great. Number two, people have this idea Um, If a little bit is good, more must be better. Well, with herbs, that mostly is not true. I know of herbs that are great in small amounts, and if you take a little bit more, you'll have projectile vomiting. So you need to stick with the appropriate dose. And so if you're getting this information from a clinical herbalist, um, then you want to make sure that um, you are following the dose that's recommended. And I would also point out, just having mentioned that, that if people are looking for somebody to work with, you know, there are certain things you can treat at home. They're simple, self-limiting things. You have, you know, occasional upset stomach or menstrual cramps or, you know, uh, something like maybe, you know, just colds or something like that. These are self-limiting. You can safely probably try to treat them yourself. But if you're dealing with something significant, you need to be working with a healthcare practitioner. And so if people are looking for clinical herbalists, the place to look is the website of the American Herbalist Guild, which is the only uh, organization of clinical herbalists in the United States. Although 
There are is an organization of uh, Chinese herbalists. Um, I think there may be, certainly there's an Ayurvedic practitioners organization. I don't know if there's one just for herbalists. And then, there, of course, there are um, medical doctors and naturopathic physicians who also use herbs, and they have their own websites. But the American Herbalist Guild is the place to go if you are looking for a clinical herbalist, somebody to work with. Yes, thank you. In addition, I would also say one last thing, and that is a lot of people have this idea that it's a sort of either-or phenomenon. And so it's either orthodox medicine or herbal medicine or complementary medicine, and nothing could be further than the truth. Basically, where herbal medicine is strong, Western medicine tends to be weak, and where orthodox medicine is strong, herbal medicine tends to be weak. And so it's not an either-or situation. It's knowing what is appropriate in a given situation. In some situations, orthodox medicine is the way to go. In other way, situations, for instance, you have Lyme disease and, you know, take antibiotics, please. Um, on the other hand, there are times when orthodox medicine may be the way to go, but herbs and diet and things like that may be a really good adjunctive therapy. And then there are times where orthodox medicine has very little to offer, and this is often the cases where herbal medicine shines and might be your primary therapy. And so, in my opinion, having a really open-minded, good physician and having a really good herbalist that you can work with is the best situation of all. It's a win-win for the patient because they are working in combination. They are, you know, helping you to understand what's the most effective protocol or treatment in a given situation. Because just like I said earlier, no system has all the answers. And so you have an herbalist who tells you they can take care of anything and everything, run away. <laughs> and, you know, but the same thing would be true of, you know, orthodox medicine. Again, they do not have all the answers. Herbal medicine doesn't have all the answers. It really needs to be what's appropriate in this given situation. And then when we're talking about how people could study with me, I have a two-year herb studies program, uh, which is David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, and the website is herbalstudies.net. Um, and then for people who take the two-year program, there's an additional third and fourth year. Um, currently, we are in the uh, 38th year that I've been teaching the two-year herb studies program, and the current class will be coming to an end in uh, August of 2018. And the next class will be starting in September of 2018. That will be the 39th and 40th year class. Wow. That may be the last of the two-year classes, although I am also possibly doing one more. So there'll definitely be one more and maybe two more. Okay. Um, I figure either 40 years or 42 years is a good, nice, round number mm -hmm. uh, to, to end uh, a very long career of the two-year herb studies program, but I'll still be teaching. I travel and teach, as I said, throughout the United States, Canada, Europe. Um, you can sign up for my mailing list. I have a Facebook post that I do regularly on herbs. It's also available to anybody. I believe those can you can get that off of my website. I will definitely um, do that. And... Um, and then, of course, my books. And I have uh, four or five books that are all available. You can get them from Herbalist and Alchemist, which is herbalist-alchemist.com. Uh, you can get them through the, um, I believe, the school website, herbalstudies.net, uh, for people who would like to, to read those books. And uh, hopefully in the next few years, I'll have a few more out. That's wonderful. David, it was such a pleasure. Always fascinating, always learning so much. Thank you so very much for spending the last hour with me and really sharing lots of wisdom, lots of, uh, lots of wonderful information with uh, me and our listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you're very, very welcome. And I thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to speak to people that I haven't perhaps spoken to with before. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this fascinating conversation with David Winston. You will be able to find David's list of the most research adaptogens in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 15. Please subscribe to the show to get the future episodes automatically downloaded to your device. 
And if you have a moment, I would greatly appreciate it if you could help the show by leaving an iTunes rating or review so more people could learn about this podcast. I read every single one. This episode is proudly sponsored by Pure Indian Foods. Pure Indian Foods is a company created by the fifth generation of ghee makers. Ghee is a healthy, shelf-stable alternative to butter and other cooking oils. Since it has a high smoke point, ghee is one of the best fats you can use for baking and high heat cooking. To learn more about the products and the company's philosophy, please visit wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash pureindianfoods or check out the show notes wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 15 for the link to the product I usually have on hand in my kitchen. 100% organic grass-fed ghee. If you use a discount code LANA, you'll get $5 off on your first order over $25. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Thank you.